Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it's important that we approach our study in fellowship, so that as we study the Word, God the Holy Spirit is active in our life in terms of His sanctifying ministry. And Scripture teaches that when we sin, it breaches our fellowship with God. Just as a disobedient child breaches fellowship with his parents because he's disobedient, we too breach fellowship with God when we're disobedient. But God has provided a grace basis for recovery from sin, 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge the sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, that is, that which we have already confessed, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all those other sins that we don't remember, because they have all been covered by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we are in fellowship, then God the Holy Spirit is active in that sanctifying ministry, and our spiritual growth resumes. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us through the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament. And you have revealed to us your plans, your purposes. You have revealed to us who you are. You have revealed to us who we are. And that as sinners who have fallen due to the sin of our father, Adam, that we are born under condemnation. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that you have done everything for us. And this was accomplished through the work of our Savior on the cross, who died there paid the penalty for our sin in full, that we might have eternal life at no cost to us. Father, because of who you are and because of what you have done, we worship you. We study your word to learn how the creator God of the universe has created all things. And it is as we study your word that we are aligned to, the, to your thinking and that we come to think about reality as you have created it and as you have defined it. Now, Father, we pray that as we submit to the teaching of your word this morning, 
that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, that we might be able to approach your word with an attitude of humility, recognizing that it is in your word that you challenge the thinking that we have picked up from the rationalizations of our own sin nature and from the views of the world around us. And it is only as we exchange the thinking of the world for your eternal divine viewpoint that we learn to think as you think, and it's only thereby that we can glorify you. So, Father, we pray that as we study today, we can concentrate and focus, and that your word will be powerful in our lives and our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in Revelation chapter 5, where we have been focusing on the doctrine of worship. You don't need to turn to Revelation 5, because we are just touching there as we uh, continue our study in worship in the Old Testament to try to understand what worship is. Worship is something that Christians talk about a lot. It's a almost a jargon word in some contexts, but very few people take the time to really analyze what the Bible says about worship and what the Bible reveals about worship in terms of the practices that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. There are certain clear prescriptions in the Bible for worship, but in many cases there are also more examples of how worship was conducted within the framework of those prescriptions. As we have been studying in Revelation, we covered this topic once before in Revelation 4.11 as we concluded that chapter. There we read that the, those in heaven, the 24 elders and the four living beasts, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the Father is worshipped because he is the creator of all things. Revelation 5-6, after the Lamb comes forward to take the scroll from the Father, the uh, 24 elders and the four living beings sing again to praise him. Revelation 5-6, we read, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent uh, into the earth. And they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We then read, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. So we are at the end of our study of this section in Revelation and investigating what it means to worship God. And in these contexts, I want you to note that in light of what we just read, that... Those words and that description of the singing of praise to uh, God the Father and to the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5 form the basis for the words 
of that new hymn we uh, we heard the choir sing this morning. We're introducing that to the congregation. But let me just read to you the third and fourth verse again and think about it in terms of what we just read in Revelation 5. Salvation to God who sits on the throne. Let all cry aloud and honor the Son. The praises of Jesus the angels proclaim fall down on their faces and worship the Lamb. Then let us adore and give him his right, all glory and power, all wisdom and might, all honor and blessing with angels above, and thanks never ceasing, and infinite love. What we see here is a great example of how a hymn writer has taken the words of Scripture and then as a result of the impact that the Scripture has had upon his own soul and his own thinking, he has crafted that into the words of a hymn. And then we sing that hymn, and the purpose for singing hymns is not simply to go through an exercise in singing, but it is an expression of our praise and honor and thanks to God. And this is often something that is not really understood in many churches. I think it has been clearly understood in times past, But uh, sadly, in recent decades, so much of what goes by as singing as part of worship in many churches today just reeks of entertainment and has these overtones of entertainment where there is a, a lot of distraction. The focus isn't on the words, as we'll see, as much as it's on the music. And in some cases, the, the music just drowns out the words. And as I'm doing study on this, I'll go to various uh, YouTube videos, and you can hardly even hear or distinguish the words of those who are singing because of the, uh, because of the music. And as we're studying in our series on worship, the focus of singing is to think about God, to think clearly about Him. And as we sing the words, they are designed to focus our attention upon who God is and what He has done. The music is really something that is to be in the background that operates much like a frame does for a picture, it is simply a vehicle for expressing these uh, thoughts about God. So the focus is really on the words. Now, the other problem that we've seen is that today the concept of worship is has been narrowly defined in terms of just singing. And we have new terminology that's come into uh, the church in the last 30 or 40 years. We have a worship leader. And the pastor is no longer the worship leader. And yet in Scripture, the highest form of worship is to study God's Word because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the Word of of Christ is the mind of Christ. And that the highest form of worship is to learn how God thinks, what God has revealed to us, so that we can begin to think like God thinks and that we can approach life from the vantage point of what God has revealed to us in his word. And all of the other forms of worship, all the other aspects of worship, singing, uh, prayer, corporate prayer, uh, giving, Uh, the Lord's table, all of these things come together and are designed to, to focus our attention on the Word of God and our reflection upon 
upon the Word of God. So when we minimize worship to just singing, then we have really introduced a a problem into Christianity that just continues to feed the whole uh, the whole problem of the dumbing down of our culture and dumbing down of the church. So with that in mind, I thought it important to go back and review the doctrine of worship and ultimately going into the direction of understanding the purpose and function of singing and hymns and music and how do we evaluate the lyrics and how do we evaluate the music so that we can think more uh, correctly about what we're doing and not so that it it gives us some sort of uh, arrogant attitude that we do it right and other people do it wrong but it is to help us think more precisely about God and His Word that we can continuously push ourselves in the direction of excellence so that we can glorify God in everything that we uh, say, do, and think. So we studied worship. We've seen the, we started off with the definition. We looked at the key words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we saw that in these words, there were two ideas that dominated. The first is the idea of submission to the authority of God. That whether we are worshiping individually or we are worshiping corporately, the key idea that's present is the idea of subordinating our thinking to the thinking of God. We are the creature. He is the creator. And we recognize that all that, that uh, he is and all that he has done defines uh, creation. And we are to think about creation in terms of what he has revealed. And we can orient to that through the study of God's word. And that often explains causes various other expressions. We give thanks to God. We saw how the servant of Abraham uh, prayed that God would lead him to the right wife for Isaac. And when he found Rebekah, he worshiped God. There it's private worship. It's individual worship. It is a prayer of thanksgiving. And we saw that in other, other passages. We also saw it with Abraham, that when he that is going to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac as God commanded. He told his serpent, servant to wait behind because they were going up to the mountain to worship God. And there it involved that principle of sacrifice, but in submission to God's command, even though uh, it w- might seem within the framework of human viewpoint to be somewhat contradictory. Abraham had grown to the point that he knew that even if he ended up taking Isaac's life, God would be faithful to resurrect him, to raise him from the dead, because God had promised that it would be through Isaac that his seed would be numbered. So Abraham was totally relaxed and trusted God and was uh, going to worship God through obedience. So we see the idea of submission to God as the first idea. The second idea is serving God. Both the Old Testament and New Testament express the idea that the Believer serves God and in many different ways. We serve him in terms of our spiritual gifts. We serve him as we uh, follow his various mandates related to the spiritual life. And in serving him, both individually and corporately as a body of believers, we are worshiping him. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, meaning not just your physical body, but the entirety of who we are, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that word there's uh, latreia, which indicates service. It's where we get our word liturgy, but it's changed its meaning a little bit down through the down through the years. So we see these two ideas of submission and service to God, and that leads to a definition that we've gone through two or three times. I just want to summarize it as the core idea being submission to God as the sovereign creator and expressing that authority orientation through gratitude, the giving of thanks, which indicates we recognize it all comes from God's grace. It's grace orientation. Uh, expressing that orientation through gratitude, through praise. These are songs which rehearse his person and his work. We express worship through giving, through rituals of remembrance. There were more in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have baptism and communion. These, this is done to remember certain things about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person, and then learning his word. That's the core idea in worship, and so that can be applied either in terms of our own individual private worship of God or as the body comes together in terms of corporate worship. Now, last week we began to look at worship as it develops through the Old Testament, corporate worship as it developed through the Old Testament, and our focus last time was on the first Song, the first act of corporate worship that occurs in the Old Testament, and that was in Exodus chapter 15, the Song of Moses, immediately following the uh, Exodus event as God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, Moses wrote a song that rehearsed what God had done. And there were two focuses in that song, if you remember. One was on what God had done. And the other was on who God is, that he is the unique God. There is none like you, uh, mighty in power. And so there's a focus on his attributes and a focus on his actions in history. Now, that's a very important uh, aspect of worship to understand, is that as songs are composed in the Scripture, they are composed in response to what God has done, so that each time God intervenes in history, intervenes in people's lives, then they would, uh, in response, write a new song. And so often you read in Scripture, sing a new song, and the meaning of new song is that because God continues to act in history and there are new ways in which God answers his prayer and we see God working that in response to those, those new events, New hymns are composed that rehearse what God has done because God, our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who acts in history. And even in the book of Revelation, we see that they compose a new song in response to what God does in the final judgments in the tribulation period. And in Revelation, the meaning of a new song is not the idea of writing new music according to new forms and uh, uh, that develop in successive generations. This is what I call time arrogance. And you often see this in the debates that go on today over contemporary Christian worship versus traditional worship. And that's really, as I've said before, that's really a, an erroneous way to present it. It's not an issue of time. 
It's an issue of style and content. And as we've seen in the past, that this affects both words and music. And as we go through a history of music, observing how uh, music is shaped throughout the centuries, I pointed out that in the early church, the early church was heavily influenced by the thinking of those, those early centuries. They were influenced by the Neoplatonic worldview that dominated the uh, Eastern Mediterranean at that particular time. And so the artwork was two-dimensional. It was ethereal. It emphasized sort of an idealistic view of uh, the spirit life. And the music, the Byzantine chants that we played along with it, exhibited those same principles only in music. And then when the worldview changes with the Renaissance, it changes visual art. It changed uh, music. When it changes again with the Reformation, later the Enlightenment, later the post-Enlightenment, on into Impressionism, up into the 20th century, every time the worldview of a culture changes, Everything changes, the way in which they view reality. That's what a worldview is. It's an expression of how they view reality. And how they express their view of reality will change. And so that the, the uh, uh, ideas about music that are developed out of this worldview often have impacted the music in the church. And what we've seen in the 20th century is that with the shift from... Uh, modernism to postmodernism, and how you know the dates for each of those vary depending upon what discipline you're talking about. With philosophy, it changes earlier than it does with other things. Art, architecture, each of these have different uh, time periods as these ideas filter down through the thinking of the culture. But the idea is that that because music changes when worldview changes, you can't just say that music is neutral. Music expresses the worldview of a culture and reinforces the worldview of a culture. So when, we, when it comes to studying uh, scripture, studying the whole issue of singing and hymns, we have to take into account these two aspects, the content of the lyrics and the music through which they are, uh, they are expressed. Now, we won't get into some analysis on the music, for a little while because we're focusing on the historical development of corporate worship and the development of hymn writing. And I pointed out last time that this seems to be related to prophecies. We studied uh, Exodus 15, the Song of Moses. We saw that there is a the way they structured things was the men sang the Song of Moses and then the women had an antiphonal response with the Song of Miriam. And it's interesting to note that Miriam was called a prophetess, and she is associated with the, uh, this particular music and the song of Miriam. And in 1 Corinthians 25.3, uh, which, which is written after many, many centuries later, after the uh, Babylonian captivity, we have this reference here of this family of Jeduthun, and uh, uh, the six sons under the direction of their father, Jeduthun, who prophesied, notice that, with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. So we see another aspect in this concept of prophecy that is related to the singing of hymns. Now, it's interesting. I've gone through some other passages. Some we'll hit this morning. 
that in Chronicles you also have a couple of instances where Levitical priests and prophets who are seers, you know, that's another word for a prophet, were also in charge of the music. So there's a connection made with uh, prophecy and the singing of hymns and praise to God. And that immediately challenges your definition of prophecy because most people think prophecy is just saying something about the future. And what we're learning here is that that is a, you know, a, a, a lesser aspect of the whole concept of, um, of worship. So we'll come back to, I mean, this whole concept of prophecy. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now I want to go to the next major passage that we have on a hymn on a song of praise, and that's in Judges chapter 5. So uh, turn with me in the Old Testament to Judges chapter 5, and this is the song of Deborah. The song of Deborah is an expression of praise to God. It is, again, as I've said before, these are expressions of joy over and over again in the Psalms when you read about singing to God, it is expressed in terms of singing with joy to the Lord because of what He has done. So that a key element in singing is this reflection upon what God has done and that because God has acted in our lives in some way to deliver us, we can sing with joy. And of course, the ultimate way in which God has worked in our lives to deliver us is in salvation. Because God provided a complete and sufficient salvation for us on the cross. He sent His Son to die for us on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for every sin in history. You can't think of one sin that God the Father wasn't aware of in His omniscience in eternity past that wasn't imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. And because Jesus paid the penalty for every sin, we have eternal salvation. And when the more we study God's Word and the more we grasp what Jesus did on the cross for us, the more we ought to exult in our salvation. This is exciting. We are not dead in our trespasses and sins. We are not condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. We are not left groping in darkness like unbelievers, but we have the eternal, absolute truth of God uh, in the Word of God uh, revealed to us so that we can know reality as it is. So the singing of hymns is a response to what God has done in history and what God has done in our lives. And that's what we see in the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. For uh, Deborah was raised up as a judge. And we read in Judges chapter uh, chapter 4 in verse 2 that the Israelites, and this would have happened in the northern area of Israel, were sold into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. Hatzor is located uh, about uh, maybe 25 miles north of Nazareth. And Hatzor, there's a uh, large archaeological dig there in Hatzor right now where they're discovering a number of things. And uh, it's quite an interesting place to visit. It was the Canaanite city in the uh, second millennium B.C., and under the domination of Jabin, they had quite a uh, cavalry, uh, a chariot army, and it was the use of those chariots that 
oppress the Israelites. In verse 3 we read, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, parenthetical aside, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So she is... uh, been raised up by God, and I don't have time to go through all of the details right now. You can go back and listen to the technicalities of this in my Judges series. But she is raised up during a time of moral relativism in Israel. That's what was going on in the time of the Judges. It's a time of moral relativism. There's one verse, one statement repeated twice in Judges, just the Holy Spirit, whenever the Holy Spirit reverses, repeats himself whenever he reveals something twice in an identical statement. It's just so we don't miss the point. He said, there was no king in Israel at this time. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone. That doesn't leave out the judges. It doesn't leave out Othniel or uh, Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah or Samson. All of the judges operate on a certain level of moral relativism in their ministry, and it, it, it's decreasingly worse. Othniel has nothing negative said about him. Samson almost has nothing positive said about him. And what this shows in a study of Judges is the impact of the thinking of the Canaanite paganism on the leadership and on the people. And as a result of that, what happens by the time you get to the second judge after his deliverance, that's Ehud. That's one of my favorite stories when Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. And then we have this somewhat um, enigmatic, cryptic statement about Shamgar, the son of Anat, in verse 31. There's nothing said about his spiritual life. He's not raised up by God necessarily. It doesn't say that. Uh, there's no mention there about his spiritual life. It, it is, uh, I've argued that Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It is, it is a, um, uh, maybe a Canaanite name or it is, uh, related to the Hurrians. There's a good case that can be made that he was a, one of the Hurrian mercenaries that fought in a elite special forces unit. Uh, that operated in the Egyptian army. And that elite special forces unit, we know from archaeological evidence, were, were called the Sons of Anat, just like you refer to, uh, was it the 82nd Airborne's of Screaming Eagles? Is that right? Is it? No, 101st. Screaming Eagles. Okay, we call them the Screaming Eagles. Well, this group of elite bodyguards in the Egyptian army were called the sons of Anat. Anat was the Canaanite goddess of war. And so what we have in verse 31 is that you have this non-Jew, this is not a Jewish name, this non-Jew who is called the son of Anat, which indicates something different from being a uh, servant of Yahweh. He kills 600 Philistines and delivers Israel. God used even unbelievers to deliver Israel. Why does he raise up Shamgar? Because everyone else is so immersed in moral relativism and self-serving objectives 
that there's no one else in Israel God can raise up to protect them on their southwestern flank from the Philistines. Verse 31 of chapter 3 merely sets the context for why God has to raise up a woman in the next chapter. See, that's the point, is that there are no men to step into the vacuum of leadership. We have a man mentioned in chapter 4. His name's Barak. He's a wimp. He won't go to battle on his own. He won't trust God unless Deborah goes with him. And so there is a judgment announced by Deborah on him that he's not going to get the glory of the victory, that a woman instead is going to get the glory of the victory. And so this indicates again that Barak is not viewed with great pleasure by the writer of Judges and is a somewhat negative example. And the victory is finally won when um, Jael, who is a woman who invites uh, Sisera, the general, the uh, Jabin's general, into her tent, uh, deceives him, lets him go to sleep, and then she nails him with a huge tent peg right through the temple. And she is the one whose praise is sung in the song, not so much Barak, because she's the one who's trusting God. He has uh, not stepped forward as a male leader should have. So that gives us a little framework to understand this particular song. Now, I'm not going to go through the details and exegete the song, but I just want to hit some high points because what we're studying is the nature of hymns as they're developed in Scripture in terms of content because this provides for us a, an example of how hymns should be written and sung for God in terms of the lyrics. Just think in terms of the content of these songs in contrast to either some of the hymns that we sing in the hymn book or perhaps some of the modern songs that are sung. And you see that there's a vast difference. There is such weight here. They're rich with content and focus on God. Uh, Many of the classical or traditional hymns are as well because they're written by men who were the products of strong Bible-teaching Uh, churches and Bible teaching pastors so that when they sat down to write hymns, they're coming out of a soul that is immersed in the Word of God and in sound biblical theology. Whereas we live in a culture today not unlike that of the culture of the judges that's immersed in moral relativism where we have anemic teaching in the pulpits where there is little that is taught of much substance, and it should be no surprise to us that the music, the hymns, the lyrics that come out of such a culture are anemic and diluted, and we have to pay attention to this. So this, we're looking at these words as, as, a, as an example. We read in verse 1, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, Now, wait a minute. Did they just suddenly break forth into song? No. It took some time to write the song. Now, I believe that it was written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, but as I pointed out before, that writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit isn't dictation. 
the Holy Spirit so superintended or governed the process that he guaranteed that what they wrote was right and accurate, but that doesn't mean that they didn't write and sweat and say, oh, wait, wait a minute, this word doesn't work. I've got too many beats in this line. Uh, let's change this word with that word. Uh, God is superintending the process. He's not dictating the words. So they, they write this, and it shows skill in writing, this is a word we find in the Psalms that we are to sing skillfully. And the word skillfully is a verb form based on the noun um, uh, tov, which means good. And it has the idea of singing uh, that which is pleasing, that which is pleasant, that which is well done, well crafted. It is thought about. It is not just something that is churned out spontaneously but something that is well thought out and crafted. And if you read this, these songs in the original, in the Hebrew, you gain a tremendous sense of how much thought went into crafting uh, these songs, just as you do with any uh, poem. You read Shakespeare. You read anyone who is a good lyricist. You realize how much thought and effort goes into writing uh, words that have uh, substance to them. So the song begins in verse 2. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. And so the concept of blessing, as I pointed out, this is a word that's overused today. and Very few people know what it means, but it is used as a synonym for praise. And so that introduces this song as a praise. It is going to rehearse what God has done. That's what praising God means. It doesn't mean to just say praise the Lord. The Hebrew word hallelujah is a command. Hallel is the verb meaning to praise. When it's hallelujah, it's a second person plural form meaning you all praise. See, they were from the south. Y'all praise. And then yah, the last syllable, is the first syllable of the name of Yahweh. So hallelujah is a command to praise God. But you don't praise God by saying hallelujah or praise the Lord. You praise God by doing what Deborah and Barak have done here. You rehearse what God has done. And look at the details. It's not just these general statements, but they have given tremendous thought to what he has done and described it in tremendous detail. We read in verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. So this is a reference back to God bringing the uh, Israelites up into the land. And then there's a rehearsal of what he did in the days of Shamgar. Um, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. The travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. So it's talking about the oppression. But they're not wallowing in self-pity here. See, I listen to some of these contemporary choruses, and they're so, they, they get you, people focused, and they're so focused on their sin and their failure that they're basically wallowing in self-pity, and they've lost the concept of the fact that, that God in His grace has delivered us and paid the penalty for, for sin. And so there is not this uh, uh, self-absorbed wallowing in their failure. It is a simple rehearsal of 
the adversity that they uh, that they went through and the uh, negative volition that had uh, dominated Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Apparently, um, uh, the uh, um, Jabin and Sisera had a policy of disarmament. Uh, you see this in ancient warfare, that those who the Jews fought would disarm them. When the Philistines were oppressing them, and later on in the early passages of Samuel, they would not allow the Jews to have blacksmiths. So they uh, restricted their armaments to bronze armaments, while the Philistines had iron armaments. Arms control is always a, uh, goes along with tyranny. And whenever you have a government that refuses to allow its citizenry to have the latest technology and armament available to them, then it is the pathway to oppression and it is the pathway to the loss of freedom. And so here you have a great example of uh, a disarmament policy and refusal to let uh, allow the Jews to have personal weapons to defend themselves. goes on as... We read on in the following verses and describes the uh, raising up of, of uh, Deborah and Barak and the, the victory. And it goes on down. Let's just skip down a few verses down to verse 19. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The term stars here is an allusion to the angels, which locates this battle within the framework of the angelic conflict. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon, which is the uh, brook that runs just below Mount Carmel. This is where Elijah sent his uh, servant to get the water to pour upon the altar uh, up on Mount Carmel. And it normally is just a very small, placid stream, but there's an indication here that there was some sort of flash flood that's not mentioned in chapter 4 that played a role in the defeat of the armies of the Canaanites. And then in verse 24, there's praise for Jael. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave milk. She brought out cream and a lordly bowl. In other words, she just overpowered him with uh, hospitality to make him feel secure. And then she uh, offered him a place to rest. And while he took his nap, she stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. Notice the detail. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. I like to sing that on Sunday morning. <laughs> See, the point I'm making is that that so much of what it passes for Christian music is so 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 anemic compared to the rich content that we have in these biblical songs. Let me give you seven observations about this psalm that apply to any good hymn. First of all. It is God-centered. It is God-centered. It's not about Deborah. It's not about 
uh, her feelings. It's not about her a focus on her anxiety level in terms of the fact that they might have been overpowered by these 900 chariots. The focus is not on man, but it is upon God and what he did. It is theocentric. Uh, unlike the Song of Moses, there's little said here in terms of a focus on God's character. The focus is all upon God's actions, what he did. Second observation, it is a hymn of joy. This is a praise to God. They are exalting. They are having a party in exaltation and celebrating. And celebration is another word that is a synonym for worship. It is a celebration of the grace of God because of the victory that he has given them. Do they deserve it? No, they don't. But God is giving it to them in his grace. Third, it's a new song. See, they're singing a new song. Why? Because God has acted in history in a new way. So because God has acted in a new way, they are going to compose a new song to commemorate it, so that this song will be sung down through the generations, so that the generations that live some three or four hundred years later, a thousand years later, two thousand years later, will sing this song and will have a connection through the centuries to the events that occurred in Judges chapter 5. Now, the reason I make that point is because what, what is happening today in a lot of contemporary Christianity is, is they just completely reject out of hand traditional good, I'll just say good traditional hymns. And there is this temporal arrogance that, well, that's old, this is new. I've been called carnal because I won't sing contemporary Christian songs because we have traditional worship. I have another friend of mine, close friend, many of you know, who's pastor of a another uh, Bible church here in town, and he's been called uh, carnal and um, antiquated. In fact, recently someone in the church came up to him and said, you know, this church has a reputation of, of bad music because you uh, sing traditional hymns, but I like it, the individual said. See, when you quit singing the hymns of Martin Luther... You quit singing the hymns of Isaac Watts. You quit singing the great hymns of the Wesleys and others who have written centuries ago. What you do is you take the current generation and you cut them off from the body of the historical body of Christ and from the generations that have gone before and the songs that they sang in praise to God. And it creates this kind of temporal arrogance that somehow we have a new, greater spirituality and what God is doing with us is superior to what He did in the past. And it isolates the present generation from the works of God in history. And that's just counter to everything that the Bible, that the Bible says. So uh, these songs are designed to be sung down through the centuries so that we remember all of the things that God has done and how he has acted in history. Fourth observation, the focus is not on the misery, the sorrow, or the guilt of Israel related to their previous disobedience. The focus is on the provision of God. Fifth point, it's well-crafted poetry. The lyrics are written well. If they are taken away from the music and you just read the lyrics, you're impressed with the quality of the poetry. 
It stands alone. And any good, any, any, any good lyrics for any good hymn should be able to stand alone as good, as good poetry. Even the nursery rhymes that we frequently use are passed down through the centuries are well written. That's why they continue to be used. You know, and when I say well written, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, sophisticated. It no- doesn't have to be extremely complicated. It doesn't have to be on the order of a Shakespearean sonnet. It just has to be well written, and that can be simple. Uh, sixth point, uh, the word translated sing in verse 11 where we read, um, well, I must have had a typo there. Uh, verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, sing a song, is the Hebrew word davar, which is a word for, which basically means word. It can also mean a matter, a thing, um, uh, it, concept. So here it has the idea of singing because of the concept. There's a number of different words in Hebrew for singing that, that give us a, a great understanding of what this a concept is, and we'll look at those in coming, in, uh, coming weeks. A seventh observation is that the theme of the psalm is to rehearse specifics on how God has delivered his people so that they can think precisely about what God has done. If you think about the better hymns that we sing, through the vocabulary that is used, it guides our thinking to think precisely about what God has done uh, in our salvation and how God has specifically worked in the lives of people. So when it comes to application, I have three points. First of all, hymns should be theocentric and not anthropocentric. It's not focusing on me and my misery. It's focusing on God and what he has done. Now, and even in the lament psalms, when, the, when, when David is talking about how miserable he is because of his sin, it is simply to set up the praise section on the focus of God. He's not wallowing in self-pity. Second thing, the lyrics should be well-crafted. We need to think about singing songs that have good, good lyrics. And third, the content of the hymn is to cause the singer to think outside of himself, beyond the things that happened yesterday, the challenges at work, the people who are gossiping about you, uh, problems with your elderly parents or your rebellious children, the purpose of the words is to focus our thinking on the character of God, the grace of God, the work of God in history, to focus on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It is, uh, the, the purpose has to do with helping us direct our thinking. And when we sing, and when I'm talking about this, I, I recognize that there's a lot of different arenas in which Christians sing. And I'm not talking about the kind of necessarily the kinds of songs that are sung in, in uh, Sunday school or the kinds of songs that are sung in, in different settings. I'm specifically thinking about the kinds of songs that are sung in a worship service as a, as a setup, as a prelude to the study of God's Word. And that what we see is that in, in singing, it begins to take our attention away from the cares and distractions of life and to focus on the God who uh, is above the cares and the distractions of our life and who has provided us with the eternal solutions 
so that we can live in the midst of those cares and crises, in the midst of those difficulties, with joy and exultation, because we have a God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus of worship then is always on God, and it's not on the person who is singing or the choir or the person who's playing the music or the pastor and his message. These aren't performances. It's all designed to focus our thought on God. And one reason I say that is uh, several weeks ago someone emailed me about uh, they felt like they should, this was a visitor, that they felt like they wanted to applaud uh, after the choir sang. And I answered, and I said, well, we really don't do that. And the reason is it's not entertainment, but in a worship service, it is designed to focus our attention on God. And if suddenly in the middle of that, some people just start clapping, it breaks the concentration. It changes the focus. And so we prefer and choose not to do that. And, you know, sadly, that person has not been back. And see, that just shows the conflict that we see here in our culture between people who want to go to church and feel good wrapped up in a, in a worship service that feeds our self-absorption rather than a worship service that tries to get us out of ourself and get our focus on God and what he has done. We'll come back next time and we'll look at the development of hymns and, and corporate worship under David as we see great development in uh, the book of Chronicles and in Samuel, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful that you've revealed yourself to us. You have acted in history. You have acted in numerous ways in the Old Testament to deliver Israel from oppression. The ultimate image is that of deliverance at the Exodus as you redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And that is a picture of the fact that you would ultimately deliver all mankind from slavery to sin at the cross by the work of Jesus Christ when he died there as our substitute. And the issue is not who we are, what we've done, not our works, not our sins. The issue is trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the penalty. It's paid in full. We can add nothing to it. It is a free gift. It is ours to simply accept or reject. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. There is no hope, there is no future without Jesus Christ. He paid it all. And God offers you a free salvation. At the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that instant God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, declares you justified, uh, regenerates you, and gives you eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. Father, we pray for each of us that as we face what the Word says about worship, that it would challenge us in our own personal individual worship, as well as strengthen our understanding of what we do as a corporate body as we gather together for worship on a Sunday morning. We pray that we would be responsive to the teaching of your word, and God the Holy Spirit would use it to mature us and to form in us the character of Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.